Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Remember what we saw in Mark 1, 14 and 15. Jesus came to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. What's the kingdom of God? It is the rule and reign of God over his people. Which means that the gospel message includes forgiveness of sins, but it also means that God enables those who are forgiven to see it as good news that this is God's world rather than their own. To see it as good news that this is God's kingdom and that God is ruling over it rather than us. Sermon by Jason Cherry on January 31st, Lord's Day Service. to direct your attention this morning are found in Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1 verses 14 through 28. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we desire to sit at your feet this morning. We desire for you to shape our outlook. So we ask through the power of your spirit that you would reveal to us the truth that our short-sighted reason cannot comprehend. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this passage that I just read is a passage for the guy who checks his phone every 90 seconds. This is a passage for the mother who taxis her kids to their extracurricular activities. It's a passage for people who love animals more than people. And for people who defend unborn babies. This is a passage for the guy at the gym who stares at his veiny reflection in the mirror. It's a passage for teenagers who think their parents don't know anything. And it's for parents who wonder when their kids are gonna learn anything. (laughs) It's for the abused and the abuser. It's for the athlete and the nerd. It's for cheaters, readers, and binge watchers. It's for the employed and the unemployed. It's for bosses and minions. It's for golfers and hikers. 
It's for the faithful and the faithless and those who wonder which group they really belong to. It's for those who own their home and those who rent. It's for fathers and orphans. It's for the lost and the found. It's for the wandering and the rooted. It's for the stubborn and the sorrowful. If you don't get the point, it's for all of us. This is a passage for all of us. All of us moderns who walk around demanding rights, demanding answers, demanding explanations, demanding that so-and-so be canceled. We have a tiny view of the world when we think we are at the center of it. And so it's ironic pride to think that there is nothing you shouldn't know. To think that there is nothing you can't know. To think that there is nothing to limit the authority of your demands. This is the sin of hubris. Job in the Old Testament dabbled in the sin of hubris. When Job went down the path demanding answers from God, God said this to Job. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? At the end of the humbling exchange, Job says the only sane thing possible. I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And so as we look at Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 28 this morning, realize that this is a passage designed to reshuffle the deck of the modern project that subordinates God to man. But we need to set the stage. So look with me at chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. It says, And Jesus said to them, to them there's Peter and Andrew, Follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And then in verses 19 and 20, James calls, or excuse me, Jesus calls James and John and says immediately they left and followed him. And so as we pick up in Mark chapter 1, verse 21, the scene is that Peter, Andrew, James, and John are following Jesus around. But they're not just following Jesus around. They're following Jesus around and they are learning to be disciples. And what we're seeing in the first couple of chapters of Mark is what does it mean to be a disciple? And in particular, the verses we're going to look at this morning are teaching us that a disciple of Jesus has a bigger view of the world. A disciple of Jesus has a bigger view of the world. Bigger than what? Bigger than the vanity of thinking that we are at the center of it. Bigger than the vanity of trying to subordinate God to us. And so one of the things that strikes you as you read the first couple of chapters of Mark is just how often the fact of Jesus preaching is mentioned. 
For example, Mark 1, 14, it says, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Mark 1, 21, it says, on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. Mark 1, 39, it says, he went throughout all Galilee preaching in their synagogues. Mark 2, 2, he was preaching the word, the word to them. Mark 2.13, he was teaching them. And so what we see in the first couple of chapters of Mark is this emphasis on the fact of Jesus' preaching. And you might read that, you might notice that, you might think, well, why is there such an emphasis on the fact of Jesus' preaching? Why don't they just give us the sermon? Why instead does he just say Jesus was here preaching, Jesus was here proclaiming, Jesus was here teaching? Why such an emphasis on the fact of Jesus' preaching? And the answer is given to us in chapter 1, verse 38. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also. For this is why I came out. And so why is there such an emphasis on the fact of Jesus preaching? Well, it's because Jesus came out so that he could preach. And of course, that then suggests that the content of Jesus' preaching is important because the scene is that Peter, Andrew, James, and John are following Jesus around, and they are learning to be disciples. And in particular, at this stage of their walk with Christ, they are listening to a lot of Jesus' preaching, which means the content of his preaching is important. And you might think, why doesn't Mark give us the content of the preaching? But actually, he does. Look back at Verse 14 and 15. He summarizes the preaching that Jesus was doing here in Mark 1 and 2. Look at it with me. Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And this is going to be our main focus this morning, are these two verses. And here we have a, a summary of the content of Jesus' preaching as he walked around Galilee in the first several chapters of Mark. And in particular, we learn two things about the content of his preaching. First, verse 14, it says that he is proclaiming the gospel of God. And then second, verse 15 we're told that as Jesus proclaims the gospel of God, he is saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And so here we have a summary of the content of Jesus' preaching. And Luke 4.43, which is, gives us this beautiful summary statement about the content of Jesus' preaching during his Galilean ministry, when it says that Jesus preaches the good news of the kingdom of God. What was Jesus preaching in Mark chapter 1 and 2 as the disciples are following him around? He is preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. Now theologians have spilt a lot of ink arguing about what exactly the kingdom of God means in this context. And so let's keep it really simple. A kingdom has a king and a people. And therefore, the kingdom of God, on its most basic level, refers to the reign of God over his people. The kingdom of God is referring to the rule of God over his people. So follow this. Don't get lost. Jesus came so that he could preach. 
what did he preach? He preached the good news of the kingdom of God. Well, what's the kingdom of God? It's the rule and reign of God. And so Jesus is preaching that it is good news that God is ruling over his people. Jesus is preaching that it is good news that God reigns. Which implies that it's good news that God reigns rather than you reign. It's good news that God rules rather than you rule. And earlier we said that the disciples are gaining a bigger view of the world. A disciple of Jesus has a bigger view of the world. Bigger than what? Bigger than the vanity of thinking you are at the center of it. Bigger than the vanity of thinking that you should subordinate God to you. And so the disciples of Jesus are learning to have a bigger view of the world. A world where they're not at the center of it. Because that's just a tiny little world. But rather a world where God is at the center of it. Which is a much bigger, fuller world. They're learning to have a bigger view of the world. A world where their authority is not at the center of it. But God's authority is at the center of it. That's a bigger view of the world. And in particular, if you break it down, they're gaining a bigger view of salvation. Now what does it mean to have a bigger view of salvation? Well, we're already seeing that it's good news, that's the word gospel, it is good news that God is reigning over you. But let's just start with the basics of the Christian gospel, which saves us. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that we were saved from the punishment of our sins because Christ took our punishment in his place. He himself took on the burden of our iniquities. God the Father gave God the Son as a ransom for us, and God the Son willingly became a ransom for us. And so the operative word in this gospel is substitution. Jesus Christ is the substitute for your sins. The Holy One for transgressors. The blameless one for the wicked. The righteous one for the unrighteous. The incorruptible one for the corruptible. The immortal one for those who are mortal. And you might think, why is salvation accomplished that way? Why in the eternal plans of God, that God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit design a plan to save a people for themselves where God the Son has to come to earth in the form of a man and suffer in order to win their salvation? Why was that their plan? And the reason that was their plan is because what other thing was capable of covering our sins than the righteousness of Christ? By what other one was it possible that we, the wicked and the ungodly, could be justified than by the righteousness of the Son of God himself, Jesus Christ? And so the plan of God is that salvation is the sweet exchange. It's the unsearchable operation that gives us benefits surpassing all expectations. What benefits? Well, benefits such that our wickedness and the just punishment that it earned are hid away in a single righteous one, Jesus Christ, and that the righteousness of that one should then forgive our transgressions. You see, that is the basics of the Christian gospel. 
That is why Christians sing. That is why Christians have joy in the midst of suffering. That is why we love our neighbor. That is why we pray for those who persecute us. And what we're seeing in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, is that there is more benefit than just that. There is more. Salvation is even bigger than that. The benefits of salvation are even bigger. Remember what we saw in Mark 1, 14 and 15. Jesus came to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. What's the kingdom of God? It is the rule and reign of God over his people. Which means that the gospel message includes forgiveness of sins, but it also means that God enables those who are forgiven to see it as good news that this is God's world rather than their own. To see it as good news that this is God's kingdom and that God is ruling over it rather than us. And so think of what this means for salvation. Remember, the disciples are getting a bigger view of the world. They're getting a bigger view of salvation. And what they're seeing, what they're learning, and this is gradual, no doubt, but still they're learning that salvation means forgiveness for iniquity. And so much more than forgiveness. Salvation means mercy for sins. And so much more than mercy. Salvation means grace for trespasses. And so much more than grace. Maybe we could say that total salvation also means understanding and seeing that the rule and reign of God over you is good news. Total salvation sees that when God is at the center of the world, that is good news. And so total salvation also means being enabled, having received the forgiveness of God, being enabled to be satisfied under the complete rule and reign of God. And that's the thing that's fascinating about the language of the summary of the content of Jesus' preaching. The rule of God is called good news. And the reason that should get your attention is because that is an abhorrent thought to the modern world. Think how abhorrent it must say, it must sound to the modern world to hear that the rule of God is good news. They would say, no, it's the exact opposite. That's the problem with the world. The rule of God is the problem with the world. But remember, what's going on here? Jesus is going around and he's proclaiming the kingdom of God. He's proclaiming the sovereign rule and reign of God. And he's saying this is good news. And in our day, the notion of someone reigning over us is loathsome. It's offensive. It's not good news that someone is ruling over us. It's unacceptable to us because it, it infringes upon our control. It infringes upon our rights and our demands and our freedom. Maybe the single most repellent thing you can say to someone today is, come to Jesus so he can rule over you. And yet that is precisely the thing Jesus proclaims. In our day, we are seeking to cast off all external authority. Now, this is nothing new. This is maybe where we're getting confused and we look at all the, the things going on in the world and we think, oh, this is new. This rebellion is new. There's nothing new. All the world is doing is trying to cast off the external authority, any authority that exists outside of them. Now, maybe the way in which that manifests in our own day is new. But there's nothing new about trying to cast off external authority. All this goes back to the serpent tempting Adam and Eve in the garden ever since. The world has been on this project of 
casting off all external authority. Has been on this project of self-autonomy. This project of self-rule. This project that wants to see man at the center, not God. That wants to see man in charge with full authority, not God. And so the way it manifests in our time may be new. I determine my gender. That may be new. I determine my orientation. I determine my identity. I determine my personhood. I determine whether or not this unborn baby lives or dies. Maybe some of those manifestations are new, but there's nothing new. It's the same thing. We're merely trying to cast off any authority that might constrain me. It's about I determine what is real. And this explains the conspiracy theories. I saw something the other day that said something like over 20% of Americans today believe in this menu of conspiracy theories. And the younger you get, the higher the percentage goes, but still a lot of older people believe in these conspiracy theories. Well, what explains that? Well, it's because we're on a project of self-autonomy where I determine what is real. And so we're at Flat Earth, 9-11 was a conspiracy, you know the menu of options. The point is, when I determine what is real, who cares about the evidence? Because I'm determining what is real. So I have the right to define the world as I see fit. And so we're, we're living in a day of self-autonomy, but it's not new, it's just the manifestations of it may be new. And all this is to say is, we don't like being ruled over. We don't like it when someone is in charge of us. We don't like being reigned over. Happiness is defined as, I get to do what I want to do, and there's no one over me to determine otherwise. And we have to understand that that is why people reject Jesus. People don't reject Jesus because they have a scientific People reject Jesus because they don't want to be ruled over by someone greater than them. We love it when Jesus heals the poor. But our sin nature hates the notion of Jesus reigning over us, Jesus ruling over us, because that means we're no longer in control. Now, in this passage I read, Jesus casts out a demon. We only have time to really focus on verses 14 and 15. But... What's interesting is after Jesus casts out the demon, notice what the people did after they witnessed Jesus' authority. In verse 27, it says, They were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. So look at their reaction. It says in verse 27, They were all amazed. And the word amazed is an interesting word. This is not the good type of amazement. It tells us next, they questioned among themselves. And then it says they questioned among themselves. And the commentators agree, this is not some sort of happy surprise. It says they're amazed. They're astonished. They're disturbed by Jesus' authority. And notice what they say. They say, what is this? And, and, and you should read that with some attitude. That's what they're saying. Just, what is this? Because they're worried that now someone with more authority than them has arrived. And when there's someone with more authority than me in the room, that means I have less control and I have less authority. And so they're disturbed by what they've seen Jesus accomplish. 
They're disturbed by this supernatural thing that Jesus has done. And they ask, what is this? And that's been the common reaction to Jesus ever since he came. We witness his authority and we ask, what is this? And then there are the scribes. This exorcism takes place on the Sabbath in the synagogue, which means the scribes are present watching all of this. And the next time the scribes are mentioned is chapter 2, verse 6. And it says, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. So it's not just the ordinary people who are questioning in their hearts. It's also the scribes, the educated ones, who witness with their own eyes the authority of Jesus. And it says they are questioning in their hearts. The scribes witness Jesus' miracle. And then they reject him. And this should teach us something about unbelief. We would do well to learn about unbelief. What do we learn about unbelief from this? Well, people don't reject Jesus because of a lack of evidence. That's never been the reason people reject Jesus. People do not reject Jesus because of a lack of evidence. The Pharisees and the scribes had three years of empirical evidence, seeing it with their own eyes, being in the same room of Jesus doing divine supernatural things, and they still reject him. What does that teach you about unbelief? It's not about evidence. It's not about an argument. It's about something else. People reject Jesus because they don't want to bend the knee. People reject Jesus because they're disturbed by the presence of an authority greater than they. The chief priests and the elders had plenty of empirical evidence. They had the Old Testament scriptures. They had John the Baptist. They had three years of witnessing the miracles of Jesus. They had an empty tomb. And yet they still reject him. Why? Because rejecting Jesus is not about evidence. It's not about arguments. It's not about scientific arguments. It's never been about that. It's about rebellion. And today we reject Christ for the same reason. The chief priests and the elders rejected him. Because we don't want to bow down to him. We don't want to obey him. We don't want to worship him. What do we want? We want self-rule. We want control. We want to be in charge. William Ernest Henley's famous poem, Invictus, is the anthem of this unbelief. It's the anthem of our insurgency against the Creator. It's the anthem of our tendency towards rebellion against our Creator. The last two lines of the poem, I bet most of you know it. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. In contrast, Jesus proclaimed the good news of the reign of God. In contrast, Jesus proclaimed it's good news when God is master and when God is captain. And why is this good news? It is good news. Why is this good news? It's good news because true joy is never found when you are master. True joy is never found when you are captain. It's never been that way. We are convinced that true joy will happen once I cast off all authority. And so children, teenagers, want, once I don't have my parents on my back anymore, then I'll be happy. And then they get a job. Once I don't have my boss on my back, then I'll be happy. Or, and it just goes on and on. And we're convinced that happiness is when I don't have that authority over me. 
But true joy is not found through being master of your own fate. Children, teenagers, especially, take this in. True joy is not found through being the captain of your own soul. It's not found through self-autonomy. Rather, what we're told is that the rule and reign of God over you is good news. There are things you can't know. And that's okay. There are things you shouldn't know. And that's okay. Because our joy is not found when we are at the center. Our joy is not found when we are the authority. Our joy is not found when we are the Our joy is found in submitting to a God who sent his son to earth to pay the penalty for our sin, to redeem the faithful from sin's bondage, and to bring them into the family of God where God is in charge, where God is ruling. And more than that, our joy is found when we then are able to live under the authority of God's rule and to be satisfied, to be joyful. Let's close with prayer together. Heavenly Father, we confess that you are our bread, you are our life, you are our hope and our fullness and our joy and our portion forever. You are our Lord. And so, Father, we pray that you would work in our hearts that we may find more joy in you being master and captain than with us being master and captain. Father, we pray this for the sake of Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. Oh,